Arsenal nil, Chelsea three. JPH lifts Chelsea's. Are we calling it treble or quadruple? I'm going quadruple. Okay. I think you can't. <laughs> You can't call it quadruple if you don't win them all. Like you can't add a community shield if you have if you haven't got the whole set. But I think once you get the whole set, you get to count it. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Is that yeah? You can't win like league, cup, and community shield. And be like, well, domestic treble. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's fair. Um, you were at the game yesterday. Uh, I guess yeah. Before the actual game, it was like a big event, right? Like Wembley was like it was a, it's a it was a big day, mark the the anniversary of the ban and the ban being lifted. What was the what was the mood like? It was great. Like the atmosphere was so nice. I love these games because you it feels like you get such an amazing mix of people that you don't always get like either at the the more general women's games, which I do think tend to still be quite family oriented, or obviously like men's football, which tends to be quite heavily masculine. But this is like a great thing where it feels like you know I saw like a bunch of lads like coming up Wembley Way singing like this mad song about Frank Kirby which they must have made up because I'd never heard it before and like <laughs> they really look like they'd never been to women's game before but I was just like love them getting into it and then yeah you got like dads and their daughters and that stuff's always like really cute so yeah just a really nice atmosphere. So I wasn't at the game I was at Spurs I said to myself right I'm not gonna like I'll watch the game tomorrow and I'll, I, I won't check the score and I'll see so I like got to half-time Spurs managed to refrain from going on Twitter got to full-time with one and I was like oh I just forgot that I said I wasn't gonna look go on Twitter and straight away the Sam Kerr chip comes up and I was like oh I said I wasn't gonna watch it but I looked at that and then obviously like took a little bit in yesterday and then I sat down this morning to watch the game and I was like right let's let's get some right I'm ready to take notes and this sort of stuff kind of watch the first little sequence of Chelsea's pressing and I'm like oh okay this is interesting like Frank Kirby's a little bit deeper and Fleming and Kerr a bit higher and then like within a minute the game's over (laughs) I know it was so bizarre it was so bizarre and I think you know what scoring so early allowed Chelsea to do what's funny is you know I was the same as you yeah looking at that like pressing pattern thinking okay this is a bit different but as soon as they went 1-0 up it was like we really didn't need to stick with any of that stuff because we're such a counter-attacking side anyway it was like okay we've tried something new it's worked within the first three minutes and now we'll just get, revert to how we always play and, and we'll just like ping balls over the top and have Kerr run onto them and Arsenal had like zero answer <laughs> Yeah, I know. It's so mad how just like even at the top level in the cup phase, just like, yeah, we'll just clip it in behind and yeah. like, we'll just cause some problems like that. The Frank Kirby goal happens really, really quickly. Um, and within, I don't know, even two, three minutes of that, Chelsea get in again and Zinsberg is making like, she's having to make these 1v1 saves. And it's, yeah, it's just like a relentless onslaught, complete polar opposite to the first game of the season at the Emirates. When you were watching it, did you feel like, we're going to, like, we could win this five or six? Well, I think by the end of the first half, because we went in a one at half-time, my worry was, oh, we haven't made the most of it. Like, we should be three or four up. This game should be dead. We haven't. Arsenal are surely going to come back out. They'll fix whatever's, like, going wrong for them. They'll kind of, like, get their heads back together. And so, like, this could be a really, like, like, changing moment of the game and like we could really come to regret it and I texted some people as well like and they everyone was saying similar things but you know it just felt like it's very hard because you know I'm doing a Chelsea podcast after this and I obviously want to talk about how good Chelsea were but in many ways you know I rewatched the game today as well and it was just like Arsenal rubbish like that really is I was really trying to push the narrative that we were fantastic but it was just like there was there was nothing 
fair for Arsenal to do. And I think what, what was really funny as well was, again, Chelsea were able to not have to press super high for the whole game. They like they didn't get tired out because there was just like a moment after about 10, 15 minutes where it felt like Chelsea realised that when Lotto Bamoy and Jembezi had the ball, they weren't really going to do anything with it. So there was no need to put pressure on them. So they were just able to stand there as like as a, a trio, Fleming, Per and Kirby, and just cut off the passing lines, and that was it. And, and they were just confident that that Moore and Beattie weren't gonna weren't gonna find those passes, and that that's basically like what happened. Felt like at the start, like I think that pressing formation initially was all about not letting Leah Volti have the ball. But even after a while, then they were like fine because the gaps w- with Arsenal's setup were so massive that even when these players are getting up the ball, none of the other midfielders were like moving around to show for it, which I just found so bizarre. And it was like the opposite of what we've seen with Idaval. Yeah, it's weird. On, on commentary, Jonathan Pierce is like, I, I guess it's, it's that thing where you're a commentator and you're doing the game and maybe different people are watching the game to normal. And he's like, Kim Little, Kim Little there wearing, wearing the number 10 and playing the number 10 role. And I was like, yeah, like she's nowhere near the ball. Like <laughs> where, where, wherever these like, I don't know, like when you're, if you're coaching central midfielders, you'd be like, well, you have to touch the ball at some point, like move towards the ball and go and get it at least to like, to, to cause the opposition to have to move and, and to track you or to follow you. And it just, it didn't happen. And even, I think there was a moment where Kim Little does like a nice little turn and like maybe, I don't know, 15 minutes in or something, maybe even less than that. She like gets between two players, but then there's, then there's like a back four and the holding midfielder to run at. And it's like, even when she did come and get the ball, there was no danger. There was no danger. Yeah. But I think also what what felt different from Chelsea compared to that opening day game was that they didn't like kind of panic when those things happen because there's that one where she spins I think through Lloyd Potts and Ingle and and runs on and but there was perf- there was like enough time but there was another one where the ball again breaks to her and she's got loads of space to run into and I feel like in that opening day game we'd have seen one of like Carter Bright or Exon kind of freak out and, and move forward and like open up that space for another player to run in. But they just stood there and were like, okay, come at us. And actually Lloyd Poltz recovers and like gets back and makes the tackle anyway. But that felt like what Chelsea had done defensively to kind of be like, we, you know, in that opening game, Arsenal was so good at moving the defence out of position. And like, look, we'd only played a back three once before. Basically, we played it in our last game of the season in the FA Cup against Everton. I think it was the quarterfinal. And it felt like we hadn't figured out what those gaps between our players were meant to be anyway. And then you had Mead, Meadamar, like pulling out really wide and Ericsson and Carter would just go with them. And it was like the other players could then just like run into those spaces. But today it just felt like we were like, okay, we know what we're doing. We know that we're just going to defend this space. And if you want to pull out really wide, like do that, like we'll defend when you get, <laughs> when you like come round, we're not, not going to worry about like getting tight to you. And, and, and that I think was actually like what was really effective in terms of you know stopping us i mean arsenal didn't have a single shot on target so that's so mad it's so mad um yeah as much as anything i was watching that thinking just like this is where it's so like obvious but like in the first game of the season kirby and kerr played like 10 12 minutes like Leah Williams, Leah Williamson was playing and she was like, she was great. She wasn't there yesterday. So they couldn't have her on the ball and, and to pass. And like, yeah, her got in so easily running off Jen Beattie. Um, I was like, oh yeah, this is, this is why you have like your starting 11 and your, your star players. Yeah, exactly. And I think the Williamson thing is obviously it's such a massive loss for Arsenal because her distribution is just so elite. And without her there, it just felt like, it felt like they didn't really have any variety in their play. I think that's what Williamson offers you a lot. She can, you know, 
carry the ball forwards. She can like make those like shorter passes and she can like switch play for you. Like she really has it all. And without her, there was like, you know, when Moy was like kind of trying to play the long balls, but there was like no, Chelsea was so happy to sit back, obviously with the early lead. There was no one really able to like run on for them in the same way that Millie Bright was kind of doing the opposite. But there was like loads of space for Chelsea to run into. So it was kind of strange to watch like, actually the tactics in many ways weren't that different. It's just like the game state made one of them like way more effective. And also because Kerr just had BT for speed and one more as well. Like for Kerr's first goal, Chelsea's second, Kerr has no right, I don't think, to to win that ball. But she just Mm. steams past Lotta. She steams past her so fast. And that was that. And Lotta just had no... Like she couldn't, I don't know why she didn't try and show her onto her left foot, but she just kind of got done by her and, and that was that. It's, yeah, it's one of those ones where you're like, you've got to decide really quickly if you're going to foul. And if you decide mm. that you're not going to foul, then you are basically at the mercy of like, you're just whatever. Okay, whatever happens here, like it's kind of out of my control because I'm up against someone who's quicker than me. Um, and to be fair, it's, it's a clever, like to go near post is, is, is obviously clever. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I just, yeah, I felt bad. Felt bad yeah, for, but it was um, funny because it was the same as the Miedemar goal in the first game. Yeah, yeah, as well, completely. She did that exact same thing and then went near post and totally wrong footed uh, burger. So that was like kind of strange as well to see to see that like revenge <laughs> revenge goal. Yeah. Um, there's a bit in the in the first like few minutes of the game where Sam Kerr gets like I don't know like she's on the floor and someone comes on to give her treatment. Does she take painkillers? I don't know. She must have, because at that point, because it was so early on in the game, I was like, oh my God, like there's no, and like people were sat behind me being like, yeah, you can tell she's limping. I was like, I don't think she is limping. But there was also this weird thing that when she was away with Australia, she trained on her own a bit. Um, She played both the games against America and they kind of said, oh, she just trained on her own because of like a jet lag thing. Like we just want to ease her into like the camp. But I like when she went down, I was like, uh, is that actually what was going on? Well, she like proper got up and just like continued like no problem at all. So yeah, I guess she must have taken painkillers. So a, I've watched the I've watched it back on iPlayer and like there's a camera on her and she, like one of the one of the physios definitely gives her like a couple of little pills and it's just like she's taking two ibuprofen. Um, but I was like, surely, surely that's not what elite. <laughs> that's what you do. You just I think do they do that. Maybe I it think is. They yeah. Do that. yeah. 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 Mad. Um. How good was the second finish? It just dropped so slowly into I the know. goal. Like I like when I was watching it, I was like, and it's so funny because also watching it back today, listening to the crowd, you can hear a point where like almost the entirety of Wembley thinks it's not gone in because almost of how weirdly it drops into the goal, and then everyone kind of goes mental. But yeah, and there's also a great picture of um, the Athletic had it in their in Art Rush's article about the game where Steph Catley's face is just like, I mean, this isn't work because this is audio, but <laughs> Steph Catley's face is like, she's kind of like the scream, like, <laughs> <laughs> as she watches it, like, going over um, Zinsberger. But yeah, just a ridiculous finish. And what's so mad about Kerr is, you know, she missed so many good opportunities in that first half. And to have then the confidence and the mentality, I know she'd scored already once she did that lob, but still to be like, being like yeah I'm gonna go for these finishes I'm gonna try it I'm still gonna back myself it's like it's one of the things that I find so impressive about elite sports people that ability to put aside what's gone before and not worked and just still trust like and back yourself that that you're gonna kind of do it regardless um and I just think it was 
such a great finish. And, you know, I think we talk a lot about um, her being like an elite striker because of how many goals she scored. But it doesn't always feel like that conversation's about like her technique and her quality. It's often about like her movement's great. She's really fast. She can like, she gets in good one-on-one situations and she's like like a good header of the ball as well. So it's almost like she's got that poacher thing. And obviously like with Mida Omar on the pitch, she's so like the like silky technical quality striker. But I just thought that finish was, was great to see like that, you know, Sam Card, I really feel like she she has it all. Is she like is she gonna stay with Chelsea just for the foreseeable? Like there's no why would she leave? Yeah, well she signed she signed the contract till 2024. So which is pretty amazing because I was actually really 50-50 about whether she'd go. Um not because I didn't think she liked it per se, but I think also it's you know tricky. She's got an Australian family, an American girlfriend, and you're living in London. So you're like oh is that like when when does a player's like kind of personal personal stuff come into play but yeah she's obviously here till 2024 so that's like kind of terrifying I think for for opposition teams because it feels like she's only getting better playing for the club you know when when you think back to like those first kind of games where she was just like missing all these opportunities and you're like oh is it going to work out and now it's just like she's scoring at a rate of like in this calendar year which I actually hate the stats because I'm like you can start it from whatever but I just saw it for this calendar year and it illustrates my point, so I'm going to use it. But she was like scoring like 1.2, 1.3 goals per 90. No. Like, that's obscene. Yeah. And it's everything else, like you say. It's it's all the... the Even the little... When she gets... I think she's fouled and it should be a penalty when uh, Kirby... Like she like cuts it back for Kirby um, in the first half. Just like those, it's those little those little touches that you do when you're in a team and you trust the people around you and like so many strikers would just be like oh just smash this near post see what happens um, but it's those those little things what's what was the xG yesterday for both teams because I have not been able to find it and I'm I really don't curious. know I've tried to look and I can't find it anywhere um, it's not like on Y Scout or I haven't been able to find it on Opta but mm. I, well, I mean Arsenal's must be negligible. Yeah, if they didn't have a sh- shot on target, even. Um, yeah. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if Chelsea's was around three, because obviously, like the Kerr, I suspect the Kerr lob, I suspect both Kerr goals are actually quite low. Yeah. Um, but then the chances from the first half, I reckon, will have put that, put that quite high. So mm. I'd, I'd guess around three, but it just felt like. Chelsea just created chance after like high quality chance. And I guess also that's the other thing from that first half was that even though we didn't put, we only scored one, it, it felt like the team knew that there was always going to be those opportunities to run in behind and they were going to get more as well. Um, it wasn't like they were missing like really intricately well-worked chances, which I think can sometimes feel like they're more like you might get like one or two of those a game it was just like so easy and obviously the longer it went on the more Arsenal would have to come forward the more you know you, you saw Idabel kind of throwing a random variety of attacking players onto the pitch until there was like I don't know basically like three number nines and I know Paris is technically number nine but her Ford and Miedemar that was again like I just didn't understand what he was trying to do with all of that mm. I don't know whether he just gave up the game I don't know. I guess at some point you do. Emma Hayes did a really, really long post-match press conference, didn't she? Yeah, yeah. yeah did yeah. you? Did you? Have you? Have you had a chance to watch it and see it? I watched some of it. Obviously, she did her her cat drive, 
um, yeah. <laughs> which was great, if a bit like kind of creepy. <laughs> Maybe just because I was like, I don't think I need to see Emma Hayes like look into the camera and kind of purr. Essentially, <laughs> that's not really like. <laughs> it feels a bit like watching your mum do something like that. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, she I think was just mainly talking about Fran, really, which I think was fair enough. You know, I know Sam got player of the match, but for me, I thought Fran just pulled the strings from start to finish really and you know Hayes kind of said it was the best she'd ever seen her play in a Chelsea shirt and I don't know if I'd go that far um I think mainly because this game was great but sometimes the games which are close almost stick into your stick in your head more as, as better performances and I think you know some of her performances in Champions League last season kind of resonate more for me on that level but yeah I just thought she showed her quality and she loves because it was the same in that 2018 final. I feel like she just loves playing Arsenal at Wembley because she kind of tore them apart then. So, And she's got a bit of um, uh, a rep for it, really, because I did in I did some of the programme notes, and um, so I had to do paragraphs for all the players. And so when I did France, I was going back and watch because like, one of her real breakout matches when she was at Reading was when they like beat Arsenal 2-0 in the Conti Cup. And at the time, it was like a massive shock because like Reading were in the second division and Arsenal were top. And like Fran scored this like mad goal where she basically like flicked the ball over the defender's head and then ran onto it, scored one on past the keeper. So I just feel like they're a team where she just feels like she's got the measure of them all the time. Doesn't matter how many years go by, who they're playing in defence. It's just like she backs herself to like take them on. Yeah. And it's so, I mean, it's just, I hopefully she'll be given a chance to play somewhere for England where she can be as effective and like everyone will get to celebrate it rather than, than just Chelsea fans. Um, rest of the season then, like all, all the momentums with Chelsea now, it feels like this is like more than, I know it's just, just the League Cup, just, sorry, just the FA Cup final from last year. But like in the same way that like I went to the game, first game at the Emirates and this was like, whoa, like Arsenal, okay, like legit, you're going to be in the mix for the title. Feels like this is a bit of a kind of a marker for Chelsea to try and kick on from. Yeah, I mean, I think in the same way, everyone probably went overboard in the, that opening day win. Oh my gosh, Arsenal are amazing. This title's all done and dusted. You can't really go the other way. But I think for Chelsea and the team, what this really offers is, I think the Champions League final like really knocked them for six. And that's kind of understandable. Like It was a really brutal defeat in a game which they felt like they could win. You know, and in, in a game which they'd waited for literally years to to have the chance to play. And I think all through the start of the season, you kind of seen them maybe just have like a bit, like a, a loss of confidence, which, you know, is not, not something we're really used to seeing. Like e even from players like Magda, who's just like someone you just normally back to give like eight, nine out of 10 performances every week. But I think the games against Man City, even though City haven't had a great start to the season, I think they really helped. And I think this then becomes the kind of cherry on top of all that of being like you know the Champions League final happened it was what it was but we were by far and away the best team in England last year we proved that we won everything there was to win domestically no Chelsea side men's or women's has ever done that before and now we're going to go and kick on with the rest of the season and you know there's another shot of the Champions League there's another shot of all these trophies again and you know we can go and win the league for the for the third year in a row as well so you know the we've got Arsenal at home on the 30th of February, so that's that's what all eyes will be on. But I do wonder if there'll be a couple of um, you know, twists in the in the WSL tail, uh, 
before or after that because it is a long season and you can't expect teams to to not drop any points. I mean, even look at Arsenal and Spurs, right? Like no one would have said thought Arsenal would drop points in that game. So mm-hmm. you just never know. But yeah, I definitely think it's a massive psychological boost for Chelsea, not just because it's Arsenal, but I just think in, in the context of of what it means for last season as well. All right. Well, another another couple of trophies probably then heading their heading their way heading their way west. London is blue. That was <laughs> that was weird. That was I did find that weird. It was like all the Arsenal promo was like, here's some paint to paint London red, and it was and then everyone was like, we painted London blue. <laughs> it's just like, can we stop? I know. Yeah, it's really it's really. I always hate that London is insert colour thing I what know. do Spurs do about that I know you don't win much ever know, but it's like, like so London like white supremacist like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah I know I yeah I mean we never win anything so it's never going to be yeah, an issue so don't have to worry about it um, alright we're kids JPH thanks a lot best of luck with, uh, with everything this week I'm sure you're quite busy yeah very busy but booked and blessed we love to see it cheers for having okay. me no worries take care Uh, George Starkey Midher, welcome back. You uh, came on a little while ago and we talked about, uh, well, like the big, <laughs> the big issues of the day at that point. We did some, uh, we did some Super League and we did, oh, we talked uh, about social media companies. We talked about yes, social media yes, companies and regulating and, and all that sort of stuff. Seems like, yeah, only, only on for the, for the big, the big broad topics, George. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks for doing that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but yeah, I mean, Sadly, the, I mean, sadly, there's not really any progress on the social media situation. And uh, I mean, I'm, we'll get into kind of Super League type topics today. But um, yeah, it's, uh, you know, progress in football is slow. Yeah, very steady, incremental when uh, when a lot of the times it feels like they could be going more quickly. But thanks for having me on. Always good to be back. Always good to chat to you, mate. Yeah, for sure. A real pleasure. Um, I wanted to start with something that it feels like it's just happened and now everyone's kind of over it. Um, Newcastle have been taken over by the Public Investment Fund of Saudi Arabia and with and probably with them like getting their first win, actually, it's kind of been a much, much. I feel like in, in the media anyway, it's been like such a big focus on them. It's just the team and Eddie Howe's come in and, oh my God, Eddie Howe's got COVID. How are they going to communicate during the game? And we've kind of really, really <laughs> lost sight of the fact that this is like a big deal. How comfortable are you with the, the fact that the PIF of Saudi Arabia own Newcastle United? Let's start there. Instinctively, my answer is, of course, I'm extremely uncomfortable with it. I mean, I think I should declare, you know, an interest here. I'm a, I'm a Chelsea fan and we... Um, you know, we obviously, as a club, played a significant part in this influx of money, at least in the last 15 years. Obviously, the advent of the Premier League in 92 changed things uh, massively in this country. But, um, you know, and you had, you know, injections of money in, in, in our football in, in the 90s. But obviously, uh, Abramovich in 2003 really changed that. And, you know, I think there are, of course, uh, rightfully questions about how, um, how he sourced his money uh, back in the sort of 90s and the breakdown of the Soviet Union. Um, I think where the takeover of Newcastle and Man City 
um, differ in that end because you know I mean to be frank from my position is that you know I think part of the issue with a lot of billionaire money in the game is that you know there's very few I wouldn't I would say there's almost no billionaires who've got their money in a particularly savoury way you know there's um, there you know I think if you if you do any bit of digging into any kind of billionaire there's always kind of some form of exploitation um, and and kind of um, just general dodginess to put it bluntly um, <laughs> but um, but you know and that doesn't mean that doesn't mean it's okay and we should just accept that but I also I just think where Newcastle and um, and Man City uh, before them had, had taken it to a slightly different level is it you know it's and I think Newcastle really is at the most extreme end of it is it's you know it's essentially it's a it's a state it's a country buying a football club it's not um, not just one one kind of individual who may have got their money from you know bad places I mean if you looked at most owners in the Premier League they're mostly owned by individuals who are billionaires who yeah again who would have certainly maximize their their money by kind of you know whether it's paying poverty wages or you know exploiting industries for you know extracting resources all those kinds of things but for 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 the sort of the state and you know i mean the, the premier league can you know and newcastle can try and suggest that there is a uh, separation between you know the fund and the state but that's just it's just not the case you know um it, it's clear for all intents and purposes that saudi arabia essentially own newcastle united um and yeah i think it's a real concern because it's um you know i mean you look at you know the idea you know the idea that a, a country you know whole countries can take over uh, football clubs in this country can use it for to kind of rehabilitate their image um, I, I really, I think it's it's a tough one as a new car, as for Newcastle fans. I think I can completely, um, you know, they, they've really gone gone through a really difficult fifteen years under Mike Ashley. I know there are plenty of clubs far down the pyramid who've gone through harder times and lost their club altogether, or had to start, you know, back down in the seventh or eighth tier. Uh, but football's relative and you know Newcastle are you know a club with ambitions and you know have had, had had some great moments over the last 20 30 years at least challenging for trophies even if they haven't won so much um and that's certainly not been the case in the last 15 years but you know even saw it you know the kind of quite vicious pushback from Newcastle supporters uh, from some of some Newcastle supporters against the you know the idea that this was a this was an issue I think you can already start to see that Saudi Arabia, you know, that it's not job done, but the, the job's getting done in that, you know, they've got, a, you know, an army of, of defenders now in England who are saying, well, you know, what have they done wrong, you know, and, and people, um, uh, you know, kind of minimising some of the, the, the concerns about Saudi Arabia and human rights abuses and, you know, the murder of um, Jamal Khashoggi and, um, you know, so there's there's really lots of concerns there, and I think what you know one of the things that I find most difficult and most sort of cynical around all of this, um, from a Premier League perspective, is you know I, I didn't really expect this takeover to happen because it got it got stopped you know last year, and I kind of you know I didn't pay huge attention to the ins and outs and the details, and all of a sudden you know a couple of months ago, um, you know it looked like it was back on. I didn't really understand why, and then having looked into it, it was clear that. Essentially, the only real reason that the Premier League tried to stop it in the first place was not concerns over 
human rights or you know sports washing or anything like that it was their concerns over you know a lot of um football premier league piracy is coming out was coming out of saudi arabia um and they wanted assurances around that um of course yeah they wanted to, to some insurances that it there was a separation between the state of saudi arabia and um and the ownership of newcastle i mean they found a loophole you know that that's barely you know you know re really in practice done anything to change it but um but I, you know I, I gather that there are more you know solid assurances that there's not going to be huge levels of um piracy of premier league products out of saudi arabia and that's what it really comes down to for the Premier League, and it's, isn't it? It's, it's never really about morals or values or human rights or you know support for LGBT issues or support for anti-racism. It, it it really comes down to the to the top top dollar and 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 who will pay it as long as they you know as long as they're you know not stealing off the Premier League brand. Yeah, for sure. I think that's where we're at now. And like we, 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 you, you can you can say that like Chelsea started this. We can say that Man City, you know, if we if the Man City bid was to, was to come in now, maybe retrospective it will go differently. Like reality is like anyone like will take your money. Anyone will take your money. Do you know what I mean? Like if you want to mm. if you want to come in and own a Premier League team, like that's cool. This like fit and proper person's test is like just not really. It's not it's not that whatever it is. It's not that. Um, and yeah, we're in this like bizarre situation where not only are, not only is it a state that runs a football team, it's like a state with human rights abuses. So it's not even like, yeah. do you know what I mean? It's, it's not, we can't even have the conversation around, should a state be able to own a football team? Because, yeah. yeah, should a murderous state? Yeah, exactly. It's like exactly. State, you know, that, yeah, exactly. that, yeah. I mean, although, you know, there's plenty of, plenty of countries out there with awful, awful records on that. But yeah, no, I mean, I, I think it's a real issue. I mean, I mean, you know, one of the positive things actually since um, since we sort of first talked about doing this podcast, uh, you know, this episode a few weeks ago, I obviously had the publication um, of Tracy uh, Crouch's uh, fan review. So obviously mm -hmm. when we last spoke, it only been, you know, there'd been some initial kind of, um, uh, you know, reporting on it. But in, uh, in the last kind of week, it's been published in full the last sort of week or two. And, um, you know, I mean, there are some some positives in there, I think, in terms of fan control of their football clubs, uh, you know, and the kind of ensuring that there's some some equality, financial equality across the game. I think, um, you know, there's there are calls for as a you know just a, a sort of brief overview. There are calls for kind of greater redistribution of uh, resources. Um, there's to what reform of the kind of parachute payments, which a lot of um, you know EFL clubs say kind of messes you know unfairly weights the advantage to you know those clubs that come down from the Premier League and they're getting huge amounts of money having just been there. Um, you know, so so there's a talk of of um, uh, a transfer levy, a transfer tax, basically proposed by Tracy Crouch that would replace the parachute payments. But what that would mean is, yeah, so, you know, when Chelsea signed Lukaku for 100 million, there would be some kind of tax on that that would then get redistributed um, further down the leagues. I think that could be a really important point. Another really important suggestion in it was uh, this idea of a kind of a golden share for supporters. 
Um, and now what that is, I mean, one of the things when the Super League failed in April, one of the things that came, kind of came out of the talks you know, that was being thrown around on social media was this idea that they have in Germany, you know, the kind of 50 plus one, that fans always are the key kind of owners of their clubs. However, um, I think the horse has bolted in that in that way in this in this country. You can't, you know, there's no way unless you literally just kind of requisition these clubs from their owners, which you know is not going to happen in this country. Um, you know, you, you, clubs these clubs are worth billions of pounds, so you know there's not a, there's no way you're going to get. 50, you know, however many fans you get together, they're not going to be able to afford to kind of purchase the club. However, or even, even if they were given, you know, even if owners were forced to sell and they were given the opportunity, there's no way at, you know, market rates, wherever that they'd be able to buy it back. Um, and I'm sure there'd be all kinds of legal issues involved if, if they were, if these owners were forced to sell at kind of an actually affordable price for fans. Um, but this idea of the golden share would essentially give, fans a kind of uh, you know and, and it remains to be seen how it would how it would actually properly work in practice but essentially would allow fans to kind of protect key areas of club heritage whether it's you know selling a stadium you know selling the pitch you know mk dons when they you know they upped and you know that it was um, formerly wimbledon and upped and left the milton Keynes, just preventing these kinds of things taking place and, i mean and hopefully preventing something like a super league that you know would allow the fans to say you know well we we can't buy the club we can't stop how you financially run it but what we can do is stop you kind of redesigning the club in your image and 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 taking it away from the the people who have made it what it is today you know 100 years of, of history um so i think there's lots of positives in there um, you know, Miguel Delaney from The Independent did make a good point um, that, sadly, there was no real mention in the, um, in the review of a, a you know, explicit mention of uh, something that would prevent kind of states owning clubs, you know, or any, any reference to sports washing. Um, I think, you know, that, that has got to be something that, that is looked at in the future. And um, I mean, Tracy Crouch was asked by Miguel what, um, Miguel, what the actual, um, you know, why it wasn't mentioned. And she maintained that actually the kind of policies and the review that was put in place would, would allow for that to be steps, a step taken in the future. You know, it would allow it to kind of at least be, uh, you know, in the conversation in a, in a more serious way. Um, and that obviously as well. So I mean, one of the main things about the review that was proposed was this uh, independent regulator. Um, and that's something, that, you know, I mean, Gary Neville was really leading the charge uh, in, you know, certainly in the, you know, amongst kind of ex-footballers um, back in, um, you know, back in April or May when, when the uh, Super League um, failed. And I think it's really important. We need, you know, you know clubs regulate themselves. Um, the Premier League regulates itself. The FA, you know, has some influence in regulating um, clubs, but, you know, they've shown themselves in many ways to be a poor regulator of, of clubs. Um, and, and, and realistically as well, you know, with the power that the Premier League now has, there's often very little the FA can do other than maybe send out a few tweets expressing their position or, you know, the things that they can do, grassroots and everything like that, that, you know, they're, you know, they're, they're, far below par and far below what they should be. And, and that's been clear for many, many years. So having a kind of 
uh, uh, an independent regulator with teeth, I think, to be really positive. Seeing fans kind of have this fight back against clubs and, and you know, these, you know, the kind of distant owners trying to just use football as their plaything, play thing, um, it would have been a real shame if all of a sudden um, there was no you know, that there was a moment that was lost and, and we all just sort of moved on from it. So it's really positive to see this review come out. And um, the Football Supporters Association, who have been campaigning on all, all these issues, um, you know, the chairman, Malcolm Clark, said he set four tests. One, that it would the review would make it less likely that we'd see the collapse of clubs. Mm. Second, that it would improve finances. Third, that it would stop a Super League. And four, that it would increase fan engagement. And he says, you know, they believe it, it passes all four of those. Um, you know, th this is not the end of things. This is far from it. If anything, this is just the beginning. But hopefully um, we're in a, a more positive place or we will be soon. Um, but quite what it means for getting rid of billionaire, billionaire owners or, you know, states owning football clubs, it, it really remains to be seen. Yeah, it remains to be seen. I was wondering, like, because I've even done it over the, over the course of just now. Like, I've kind of accepted, oh, yeah, no, Newcastle are owned by Saudi Arabia. Do you know what I mean? And it's just like, it's yeah. happened. And for a while, it was a big issue, but now it's just happened and we just got to kind of get on with it. Is what, like, what can, when, and I mean, when, I'm, when I say like, what can we do? I mean, like, as fans, like, when we're talking, if we're like, if you're a fan who cares about this sort of stuff, what other ways do you think to try and like, bring this up in conversation with your friends when you're talking about football or with your colleagues or I don't know anything like that to try and make sure that it's still on the agenda and that like it's still being talked about it's a good question I mean I think you know first of all it's, it's staying engaged and, and you know and 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 looking you know having a read of the fan review and 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 really trying to understand um, the kind of proposals in there and how it could really impact football, at, you know, for the better, and and really trying to hold hold football to account on that, you know, whether you know, I mean, lots of fans have different avenues. If you're, you know, if you're just a match going fan, a season ticket holder, you know, you can send an email to your club, you know, keep engaged, speak to your supporters trust. You know, Chelsea have, uh, I'm, I'm a Chelsea fan. Chelsea have a supporters trust. We've recently elected a um, sort of a, a fan, uh, you know, fan representatives to the board. They're not going to have um, a vote as such, but they'll at least be a, a, a observers and, and, and get an input. And that will kind of hopefully trickle down to the rest of the club and, and there'll be more of a voice there. Um, you know, so I think it's important that, you know, at every, you know, I think, I think Tottenham have done something similar. I'm not sure which other clubs have, but, you know, really trying to, you know, stay engaged you know in the same way in political movements you know trying to stay engaged with the, the, the kind of the, the fellow fans who have like-minded fans who want to protect kind of football want to protect your club uh, want to protect the game more broadly um so you know getting involved in, in supporters groups so you know becoming a member of the football S supporters association um you know, I think one of the a really positive, uh, well, I mean, the, you know, a really important action. I, I say that lots of that we've seen a lot since um, Saudi Arabia took over Newcastle have been um, the, the work of LGBT uh, plus football fan groups. Um, 
So, you know, because obviously there's a, an awful record in terms of LGBT uh, rights in Saudi Arabia. So, you know, lots of uh, every time that Newcastle play, um, you know, any team, there have been LGBT plus supporters groups from, you know, from each kind of club trying to raise the issue, use the, use the game that they're playing at Newcastle to talk about LGBT uh, issues uh, in this country, but also, you know, in Saudi Arabia, there's the case of one fan in particular, um, Suhail Al-Jamil, um, uh, who's a gay man who's been uh, jailed in Saudi Arabia, um, you know, a gay influencer who's, I think, uh, charged with sharing nude um, photos online and is, uh, you know, faces three years, you know, in prison. And it's a really important case. And um, with Crystal Palace fans, uh, Brighton fans, and, you know, lots of other um, LGBT plus supporters groups are really trying to keep that going. So I think, you know, actions like that, I think are really important. Um, I think, you know, holding, um, holding now that, you know, the, the government and, uh, well, Tracy Crouch to an extent, I'm sure she'll be really lobbying hard, lobbying the government hard to get this enacted, but lobbying the government, you know, speaking to your local MP when, when the time comes, uh, you know, writing a letter to your, your local MP, um, asking them if they'll be, you know, voting for the legislation as and when it eventually, hopefully gets put in front of parliament. Um, so it's really just trying to stay active, talk about these issues. Um, and, you know, and I hope, you know, there's lots of journalists who've been doing great work on this. I've already mentioned Miguel Delaney, you know, Adam Crafton, uh, the list, you know, David Conn, I think, you know, the list is really endless in terms of people who've been discussing this. And I think it's really important to kind of keep reading what, what they're writing, staying across it. And, and yeah, and I mean, uh, sadly, I think, you know, with something, you know, with Saudi Arabia's takeover, there's nothing, there's no quick fix that will mean that they're not, they don't own Newcastle anymore. Uh, but I think certainly the kind of some of the key issues around human rights and LGBT rights, you know, those things can we can keep speaking about them, we can keep talking about them. And then, you know, I think this fan review has certainly what is done, it's at least opened a door, you know, opened a pathway to a game in England that is, uh, you know, more representative of the fans who are the ones who made it what it is in the first place. Yeah. Yeah, I was thinking that because I, I went to Spurs twice this week, and that's the first. It's the first time in so long that I've been able to go to like back-to-back home games. Like it just mm-hmm. hasn't really happened. And I was walking to games. I'm thinking like, this is like, of all the Spurs fans in the world, only a like a handful get to go to the games. You know what I mean? Like I've got a season to go to Spurs. Like that in itself, like I'm really lucky to have that. Then I was thinking about like what, like during the game, I like maybe go early, have a drink before. Like we'll watch the game. I don't. Re- I'm not really chanting. If I'm, I'm just like I'm trying to watch the game. I'm with my dad. Like we're chatting about little bits that we see. Um, gets to halftime. We're chatting probably on Twitter. Like looking at other score lines. Not maybe. Okay, if there's someone interesting at halftime, maybe I'll like listen along. Um, you know, like interview an ex player or they'll have like they had Chris Paris there the other week. Um, who's the, yeah. the chair of. Proud, proud, proud Lily Whites, yeah. Proud Lily Whites, yeah. to that yeah, interview. And so then like, the trustee of Kick It Out, and yeah, yeah, yeah. So like that's what. So you like engage for that second half, like fine, and then just like go home. Do you know what I mean? I went in the club shop. It's like hundred and five pounds for a shirt, so I'm not gonna buy that. Um, so yeah, I say all of that to say like basically like the the 
the stuff you're saying is like it seems like yeah that's the that's the stuff we should do but even as someone who like goes to spurs i find it tricky to do anything more than just be there and just mm -hmm. basically be a fan do you know what i mean totally no no totally and i think that's the thing is the difference um in terms of you know what i'm saying about people staying engaged is oh you know ultimately it shouldn't have to be like that it shouldn't have to be that you know every, the reason fans started watching football is not to be activists you know people a lot most people don't really get into football because they want to you know be an activist within football or they want to change the world from through football most people get into it because they just love football the game watch you know and it's going to the game watching the game moaning when your team loses you know you know being very absolutely delighted when your team wins all these things you know getting pissed off at the ref and all these kinds of things that's what you know that's what most people want to go to football for but i think the danger of that i suppose now is that you know you've had a you know and certainly i mean up until 80s 90s you really could do that without you know i mean lots of people could without necessarily having to think about other things um certainly at least you know fan control of the game but you know now we reached the point in the last 20 years where it's been a kind of a you know drip 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 before you know before our eyes of, of, of you know fans gradually being pushed out and pushed out and having less and less of a voice um and it's it's you know if if we as a group whether it's you know chelsea fans you know premier league supporters supporters across the efl and you know further down if we don't make our voices heard you know, I think that would that you know the Super League was a disgrace, but it's not it's not going to end there. That was a in a way it was almost a warning shot, and um, you know it was incredibly arrogant from the, the the football clubs, you know, including my own Chelsea, to think that they could, you know, just kind of push that through with no real engagement. But next time they 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 may try something like this. They're going to be clever about it. At least I think they will. You know what I mean? Because they 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 got a reaction they really did not expect. Um, but the, you know, the, the, there's a, a very good chance that next time that you know that they'll come a bit more prepared. You know what I mean? They got bruised last time, but it, you know it's it's still got, you know gonna, lots of European clubs that's going to be on the agenda. Um, and I think, but I think that's also why it's really important. This this fan review by Tracy Crouch. I mean, you know. It remains to be seen at the moment it's just a review it's recommendations there's nothing actually you know it's not changed anything just yet but i think as a first step it's very important because ultimately like you say like you say you, you know you find it hard sometimes you just want to go to the game and just enjoy the game and i'm the same i don't want to go every week and worry about you know regulation and all this i go i go with my dad my brother we've been season ticket holders for uh, 18 years now and and you know it's one of my favorite times of, of you know every other week and you know it's family time and it's you know watching you know it's the thing we all love so I don't necessarily want to think about all that and that's why it's absolutely essential that the authorities the people who have more clout than than me or you or even smaller fan groups or the, even the football supporters association who do their absolute best with the kind of limited resources they have you need, you know, you need government legislation. You need the FA um, to be more robust in fighting for fans, you know, which, you know, that you don't really see them do. Um, the Premier League, you know, I mean, I haven't really got any hope that they'll fight for, fight for fans, but they need to at least be forced to understand that, you know, they have, they're going to have to listen to us, even if they, they would rather not. 
Um, so yes, yeah, so I think it's just you know it, it's it's it, uh, what we can do as fans is to keep putting pressure on the people who can actually really you know make the difference in terms of legislation, in terms of in, you know really enshrining our voice within the structure of the game. Yeah, and that's the thing that feels distant and far away and big and like bigger than 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 all of us i suppose um yeah but yeah you're right you are you're completely right so like i say i've been to spurs few three i think well i've been twice this week beat brentford 2-0 beat norwich 3-0 on the touchline is this fairly (laughs) serious looking but like i'm sure inside there's some big kind of playful part to him um you're a Chelsea fan, you won the league with Conte. What can I expect from Conte over the next? I think he's got another 16 months or something on his on his deal. Yeah. He has got a playful side, by the way. You know, <laughs> I think one of the, one of my favorite one of my favorite clips of him, even though I absolutely loved Diego Costa, you know, towards the end of his time at Chelsea, he was um, you know, he was playing up a lot and it was the disciplinary side was getting more and more difficult. And then he was having rows with Conte behind the scenes. And and I can't remember the line that, that Diego Costa put out there in the press, but he kind of, he accused Conte of treating him like a, a criminal or a murderer or something like that. And someone asked him about it in the press release, in, in the press conference, and Conte just started laughing. He <laughs> just like... I just started laughing for about a minute and then the journalists all started laughing because it really did just, you know, it was just ridiculous, you know. Um, so he has got a playful side, but no, I mean, you know, 95% of him is very serious, very passionate. Um, and he's also just, he's a, he's a fantastic, fantastic manager. You know, I think originally we were supposed to have this chat sort of two, three weeks ago. And I think the start of Conte's time at Tottenham, it, you know, it was like, Christ, there's a big job on here. And yeah. he's making me laugh, Conte, with some of the things he was saying in the press. was like, in a very Conte, very Italian way, he was saying, the level of Tottenham is not so high. <laughs> you know, it's not so high in this moment. And it was and it was just because it was very, very true. But I think already now, you know, two, three weeks on, you're starting, you know, Tottenham aren't setting the world on fire, but you're getting wins. You're getting yeah. wins now, you know, you know, as you, you won on the, is it, you know, two or three games, certainly in the last two weeks you seem to have won, you know, you're, you're, you're getting, you know, there's some rhythm there. And I think, you know, you should expect Tottenham to get a lot, lot better. You'll have players who in other systems and other teams with other managers are sort of bang average or below average, and they will be much better under Conte. You know, Victor Moses, prime example of that. You know, yeah. his career was really nowhere with Chelsea. Nowhere. And then all of a sudden he was, you know, prime Cafu for a season. Okay, not quite, <laughs> but you know, he, he he was he was really excellent that season. Even Marcus Alonso, um, who sometimes struggled in a back four, you know, he 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 did really well uh under Conte. You know, all kinds of players who um you know, David Luiz that season, who, you know, could be brilliant and had been in certain situations, but he had, you know, he, you know, on his day that year, he was fantastic. Finding a position for, uh, you know, I think that was the first time under Conte that Azpilicueta had started to play right centre-back. Um, and as Azpilicueta had been getting older, he wasn't as effective at full-back, and that was a really good um, kind of spot from him. I think already, you know, I mean, you tell me, but in the last few weeks, I've seen and been hearing really good things about, for instance, how well Ben Davies is doing as a left centre back. Yeah, got to eat some words there. I'm like, there's so <laughs> many, but no, you're right. That's like, it's, it's the prime example of like someone who, like, you watch them play. And I was thinking in the game, yes, like, what is Ben Davies good at? 
I don't know. He's just left-footed. That, like, do you know what I mean? Like when you think about like what are his qualities that make him a Premier League defender? But then he's like he's had three really good performances in a row. Leeds, okay, Leeds, Brentford, Norwich, but like they're Premiership teams. So you've, yeah. do you know what I mean? Nearly beat what's in front of you. Yeah. Um. So the catalyst for the uh, I'm like retrospectively looking at the season that Chelsea won the league on the Conte, it's like you go away to Arsenal, you're three 0 down in like half an hour or something, right? Gets to half time, yeah, he yeah. does this big switch to the back three. What do you remember about yeah. either that game or the like period I, after that i remember it um partially for one reason because uh, uh an old friend at the time somehow he decided that arsenal were going to win three nils that were going to win and, and going into that it didn't seem like that at all i was like oh right mate yeah of course and then they actually did and it really pissed me off and i think mm. i even bet him like a tenner um but the actual game itself um, yeah, I mean, it was, it was a weird one because as far as I, I mean, Arsenal, you know, were by far the better team. But I also, you know, remember it feeling like it didn't quite feel like a 3-0 game. Uh, but Conte, you could see he wasn't happy. And then all of a sudden, you know, he makes that switch. And you could see, you could see we were a much better team. And, you know, Chelsea had really never, you know, we played different formations over the years. We'd never played, I mean, certainly not in, in my living memory, you know, from, you know, born in 92, been, you know, can remember from about 97. I'd never seen us play three at the back like that, unless it was, you know, those times when you're scrambling to get a goal in the last five minutes and you throw, you know, extra strikers on. Um, so, you know, I think there was, uh, we still came at the end of that game, you know, we'd still been battered by Arsenal. So, there wasn't a there wasn't a huge sense of hope, but it was there was a bit of intrigue there. It was like okay, well that might that might work a bit, you know that's interesting. And then after that, we just went on this unbelievable run, and and you know, I mean, in many ways, I mean, it's certainly it, you know we're still feeling Conte's influence at Chelsea now because of that. Um, you know, Tuchel decided to go um, to a back, uh, but you know, back to a three four three formation. And, you know, tactically, there are still many differences between him and Conte, the way they're set up. But, you know, the when he first came in, certainly, and there, you know, he hadn't had time to work with the players, he decided to go, you know, make us more solid. And it was also, obviously, he, you know, he picked some of the players who had been there from the kind of Conte era. You know, Alonso really hadn't been playing much. He sort of came in immediately, you know. Um, uh, you know, I mean, I think Rudiger from, I guess, from the, the season after we won the league, Rudiger was there, but had played under that formation. Um, and we're still doing it. And so, you know, I, I think, he, you know, the, the fact is, one of the, because Conte is an explosive person, and, you know, we haven't quite got to that bit, but, you know, ultimately, you know, he's not going to be at Tottenham for five years. I can see at some point, you know, him having a row with Levy because because Levy won't, you know, give him the money he wants in the transfer window. You know, there's no way Conte would accept that kind of, what, two or three transfer windows in a row that Pochettino didn't get a player in. That, he won't accept that. He'll be gone. But there was a slightly bizarre chat around when he came in, like, oh, is this a bit of a wrong choice? Is this a bit short-termist from Spurs? And it's like, well... Would you rather have new, you know, should we just get another new, you know, should we get Eddie Howe in because he's more of a long-term manager? We're not talking about just a name here. We're talking about genuinely one of the top five managers in the world and not used to be. You know, when you got Jose in, there was there was excitement from Tottenham fans, understandable, well, from some, from some, uh, from others not, but it was still, okay, big name, blockbuster, 
but he Jose hasn't been a top three manager in the world since you know I mean at a stretch 2015 when he won the league with Chelsea but really probably a bit before Antonio Conte is one of the best managers in the world right now yeah won the league with Inter Milan last season first team in 10 years to 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 win it other than than Juventus this is a fantastic manager and even if he's only a year and a half he will make you so much better and I I, 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 you know and I, I was thinking this at the time and it's it's seeming more likely now, but I, you know, I want to really stick my neck out and say it. I think Tottenham will finish in the top four. I think you will finish above Arsenal and West Ham for that mm. fourth spot. I do think the top three will be some combination of City, Liverpool, and Chelsea. And I think Tottenham will finish in the top four. I mean, January is going to be a big month, but he's a brilliant manager. Yeah. The uh, the weird thing of like we're two points off fourth, like and we're awful. <laughs> we haven't even exactly. been good yet, and we're two points exactly. off fourth. Yeah, and even when he came in, you weren't that far because there's been a bit of a scrap, and I, that's why I was thinking. Tom was like, I really think, you know, six. Po- I think he was six points off fourth or something when he came in, and I was like, well, I think they've got a decent chance. And now it's like, well, yeah, you know, I mean, Arsenal, you know, look much better than they were last season this year, but there's still problems there. Arteta certainly isn't the manager that Conte is. West Ham look, you know, that I mean, they beat us on the weekend. Um, and that you know they're having a brilliant season. I think still part of me thinks that you know they will. Um, they they may just fall short. Um, you know, again, January is a big month. They might get Lingard back in. You know, we'll see who Tottenham signs. So you know, it's certainly going to be an exciting race. United, of course, um, you haven't mentioned them, and they obviously got a new manager in now. So it's going to be a real interesting battle. But you know, I think of, of those four clubs. Tottenham definitely have the best manager, maybe not the best players, but you know, I I, I just I just think I, I was really bemused by some of that, not really from Tottenham fans as such, but some of the kind of media chat about like, oh, is he a bit too short term? Is is it gonna blow up? Is it this? It's like I mean, you know, he is, you know, I, I think managers who are better than him in the world, you know, it's a very short list, you know. Yeah, you know, Pep arguably, you know, Pep and Klopp and, and maybe arguably two shout, you know, maybe those three, and they're obviously all in the Premier League. Um, but Conte on his day can beat any of them, 100%. Yeah. You know, so so I think, uh, you know, if I was a Tottenham fan, I'd be excited. Yeah, for sure. It was a weird one for me because when, when Nuno went, I was just like, well, we've just wasted four months. Do you know what I mean? Like, if we were going to bring a manager in, bring a manager in who's going to be the manager for the team for yeah. the season, the next two seasons... If Conte was available in the summer, why did we not do everything we could to try and get him in? And if yeah. there was this huge thing that stopped from happening, just like what's changed kind of thing. Yeah. But like, yeah. we're we're definitely we're definitely going in the right direction. It's funny. So in the first half against Leeds, they hammered us. They absolutely hammered us. Even the first half against Norwich yesterday, we went in one 0 up. But like we were, it looked like we were defending like five defenders back, two midfielders in front of the ball two like Lucas and Son as like the kind of two inside wingers, whatever. Um like in 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 spaces going out to close down the fullbacks. But like Tanganga playing wing back, just not the same isn't as comfortable defending higher up the pitch as even Region is on the other side. And we just looked a little yeah. bit like lopsided and unbalanced. Mm-hmm. But then we just like we just won and kept a clean sheet. 
So it's just kind of you just take it. Yeah, we've got exactly. some big we've got some big games coming up. So we'll we'll see how we do. Um, do you know who's been linked with a move to West Ham? Uh what Eden Hazard. Is Eden Hazard. Yeah, it's yeah. never it's never gonna happen. I mean, yeah, I mean yeah, the imagine? source of that, I saw that story, but the source of that story, let's go, you know, no. No personal insult to any journalist who works in the Daily Express, but as a paper, they have, I think, consistently the worst record on transfer news stories. Yeah. So, you know, as much as it, it's fun, fan fodder, you know, we've got a month till January. Yeah. I just, I, you know, I don't think Hazard's ready to um, give up top-level football just yet. I mean, you know, West Ham are having a great season, yes. But, um, I mean, you know, who knows? I could be completely, you know, eat my words come January. But I just, I think if he was going to come back to England, um, if Chelsea wanted him, he'll be coming to Chelsea. Yeah. Um, for me, I don't know. It's hard because, you know, obviously I, I love him. He's a fantastic player. You know, one of our, one of our best ever. Um, whether we should be spending X million, you know, 21 million, 25, 30 million. Definitely not. Player. Definitely not. At his age, he's really struggled for fitness in the last two years. But then also sometimes it's just like the romance of it. Just ah, just get him in for a year or two. It'd be fun. No, I get it. We just we just had it with Bale. Don't do it. It was like yeah, it was yeah. this like it's this weird kind of fun thing. He wears a different squad number. It's that's kind of fun. But then ultimately, like he did nothing for us. He scored a few games in Europe that led to nothing, and he like yeah. minimal highlights and or just like memorable memorable moments you don't want hazard starting ahead of you know you've got like proper good young players do you know what i mean yeah. like i mean not i think the difference there. with us somewhat i guess is that we still have not had someone we still don't have anyone who is you know since bale's gone you've had lots of players come and go and kane banging you know last season banging in you know top goal scorer top assist maker since hazard left we still haven't had anyone who's been any kind of, you know, 15 goal a season threat. You know, we haven't, I'm not sure. You know, last season, Jorginho was our top league goal scorer with seven penalties. Uh, the season before um, was Abraham with like 12 or something. I don't think anyone's hit 15 league goals since he's gone. Um, so, you know, really uh, there's, you know, we'll, I think in the long run, we've got to trust our kind of younger players and help them through. But also, you know, as we've seen the last few weeks is that, you know, we, we still have a real issue at the moment at Chelsea in, in terms of working out what our best attack is, mm. um, who's going to be a consistent goal threat. I mean, beyond the defenders, defenders, you know, banging in goals for fun every game. I was going to say, but, do you know who might get 15 league goals this year? It's yeah, James. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But yeah, it's the attackers who, um, you know, who are really struggling, and I think we're really struggling to get Lukaku. I don't think I don't think he's playing necessarily that badly, but as a team, I don't think we're set up the right way to make him play. And I don't know what the solution is as such because I don't get paid millions of pounds a year to be, um, you know, be a top level manager. But we really haven't worked it out yet. You know, you've you've got you've got to stop this. Inter Lukaku, he's going to hold it up and set the ball. He was so good at Inter last year, running channels and like mm. he was devastating. There's definitely a, a way to figure out uh, like building attacks around the fact that Lukaku can peel out great deliveries from from well, Chilwell's out obviously, massive massive loss, mm. but yeah. um, great deliveries from both sides. Him arriving in the box, but also him yeah. just like running at people. Like he's 
he's yeah. fantastic at that. And that just no, takes away right. such a big part of his game. Um, yeah. 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 Uh, Chilwell out for the season, right? Just done. Well, so they've not quite announced that yet. They've, they're basically, it's, they're waiting till January mm. to see the state of his injury. And basically, they're going to decide in January whether he needs surgery. If he needs surgery, yeah, that's it. Mm. Done season. But it may be that, um, that come January, they'll actually, you know, he might be fit to play by February, March or something, you know. I think they'll make that decision in January because, of course, if he's not, um, if he is going to be out for the season, I think they might have a decision to make in terms of potentially recalling. I don't know whether we've got a recall option on Emerson at Leon. Um, or whether we have an option. Um, well, I'm sure I think we do have an option potentially. We've got young Ian Matson at Coventry, who's yeah. supposed to be doing very well. Of course, we've got other options at Chelsea already. You know, as for the Christ have been slotting there. There's talk of Saul maybe playing there. Christ. So, um, yeah, I mean, we, you know, certainly can't have him in centre midfield anymore. Yeah. Delicious. But, um, but yeah, so we'll see. But that that was a real blow. That was a real blow. I mean, thankfully, Reese James is still ripping it up on the other side. Um, but I think, it, it, in a way, it it it's tougher for Reese as well at right wing back without Chilwell at left wing back because I think, you know, clubs are now going to stop kind of focus focus on focus on Reese and focus on stopping him. Was when you got the two. I mean, the thing is, Alonso is still a good player. You know, I'm, I'm very happy with him as a squad player. I don't mind him getting, you know, a run of games, but it's really, you know, you don't want him to be first choice. Mm. Um, and I think, you know, we'll, we would get to a point with Reese and uh, Ben Chilwell on those, in those fullback positions where, you know, sort of it's, it's similar to, you know, Andy Robertson and, and Trent Alexander-Arnold at Liverpool, where, you know, it's really difficult for teams to handle the kind of threat coming from both sides. Yeah. Um, it was a very unfortunate time for it to happen. I I honestly think Reese James is one of the best, I don't know, 12, 15 players in the league. Like I mean, he, I, he, his ceiling keeps getting higher and higher. You know what I mean? I think yeah. he's fantastic. He's just a fantastic player to watch. I went to the first game of the season at the Emirates. Oh, sorry, no. It was Lukaku's first game. Arsenal, yeah, so second game or second something. Second game of the season. Like yeah, Arsenal nil, Chelsea yeah. two, I think. Lukaku scored one, Reese James scored one. Yeah, it was two or three or something like that. Yeah. Oh, and like every, every, he can do everything. He can do everything at a really high level. The game's so easy for him. He's got great players around him. So even like what you just said with Chilwell, he's still got Mount inside him. He's still got great attackers. He's got good cover when he goes forward. Mm. Like, I, 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 I was, yeah, I was blown away by him. I don't know what the. I don't know what the like, decision-making process is for like him thinking about his, I don't know, the next five, 10 years of his career. But like, as long as he's with a good coach, he's going to be um, like, he's going to be a joke for 15 years. Yeah. I think, you know, he's, he's, he's an incredibly exciting player because he is, he's just, he's a really, he's a complete footballer in terms of, you know, his his technique, he's fantastic on the ball. You know, he can whip in these really dangerous crosses, but he can also, as we've seen more, you know, there's been a slight tactical shift from Tuchel in the last kind of six weeks or so uh, since we had that first week to Juve and City, where he's kind of getting the uh, the wing backs to 
cut inside and really kind of run down the middle, you know, whereas before they were mostly kind of up and down the wing. Um, and so what, you know, Reese can really, you know, if he is out wide, he can whip in a fantastic ball. But as, you, as we've seen enough times this season, if he's kind of in that inside forward position, he can really hammer a ball into the bottom corner too. He's got fantastic technique there. He's, I mean, you know, his strength and his, the amount of time you just see players absolutely off, bouncing yeah. off of him. He's, you know, he's fast. He reads the game well. There really is, you know, at the moment, there's no, really no obvious flaw that I can see to his game. Um, and, you know, I mean, it'd be interesting to see if at some point, you know, I think he, whether he may move into a, a more a more central position. Yeah, um, stepped in for England, didn't we? Didn't he? Back in the game. He did, and he for Wigan. Uh, this last season, he was at, uh, on loan before, uh, kind of getting in Chelsea's first team squad, and I think it was, I think it was seventeen, eighteen, or the year before. He was at Wigan, and he was their player of the season. He got in the Championship team the season, and you ask a Wigan fan, they they, they absolutely love him there. Um, and he was playing a fullback and then eventually just got moved into centre mid because it was a bit like, you know, um, right, I mean, you're too good just to be, to be our yeah, best you can player. Right you yeah. played in midfield. Um, and he's interesting because he, I think he's a different, he's obviously a different player to Trent Alexander-Arnold, Reese. And whereas with, um, with Trent, you know, there's been chat every now and then, oh, why don't, you know, why is he playing midfield? Because he's, you know, he's so creative. But I think with Trent, the way Liverpool was set up, I think I don't think he should ever move from right wing back, certainly not for the foreseeable, because it's set up so that he can his playmaking and his abilities from there are, you know, unbelievable. And that's why he gets so many assists and stuff like that. And he can really, you know, I can't, you know, whereas putting him in centre midfield, I think he might get suffocated a bit more. Um, and he's not necessarily as you know, physical as someone like Reese or something like that. So I'm not sure, you know, I think having that space and being one of Liverpool's, you know, best playmakers, I mean, Grace Robertson, fantastic. Yeah, I was going to say, Grace Robertson, yeah. She, she talks about that has, uh, herself. She's mentioned that a few times about, you know, I mean, Trent's almost uncomparable to other wingbacks because he's a wingback, you know, almost in name only because the way Liverpool's team set up, it's set up to kind of have it, create this space for, for Trent to be a brilliant playmaker. Because I think the difference with Reese James is he, um, you know, he's got, I mean, first of all, he's got a bit more experience playing in the centre of the park. I think the nature of, I think he's positionally, I think he might be more versatile. You know, we've even seen him for Chelsea play right centre back a few times. He's more comfortable going through that middle and, you know, dribbling with it as well and kind of making those driving runs, which I think, again, Trent doesn't always do as much. It's not really a criticism of him. He just kind of, he's, he'll find the space and deliver the killer ball, whereas Reese sometimes will, 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 you know, will, will take it 20, 30 yards up the pitch. Um, so I would be interested to see if some point, at some point, if Reese does do that. Um, but I think it's just, I mean, you know, it's just fantastic. I mean, I just love seeing him play and his passion on top of that and his kind of cool-headedness as well sometimes it's easy to forget you know that he reads James is what he's only you know 21 years old so um, much. About, you know, 22 in a couple of days but you know this is someone who who looks so comfortable yeah um, and what a player he is to watch I just yeah I, I love it yeah it's it's him and Trent is like 
you know, I mean, maybe not quite the same, but like Robertson and Tierney for Scotland is just like they at some point they just decided look they're both going to play because they're both fantastic. Mm-hmm. Carl Walker's probably still got another couple of years, mm-hmm. but at some point they're just both going to play, and we, everyone's going to have to just kind of deal with it because they're going to be yeah. two of the best players in the squad. Um, yeah, and yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, it's a challenge certainly for for um, for Southgate because. You know, to, to, to kind of fit them both in the team. I think, you know, at the moment he seems to be sort of leaning a bit more towards Reese James. Mm. I think, you know, it would be, you know, as much as I absolutely adore Reese James and, of course, would, would prefer him to be uh, sort of starting, I think it would be a real loss if we didn't also find a way of, of having having Ale- Alexander Arnold very, very regularly, you know, in the team because, you know, he is one of the, the best playmakers in the league. He's, um, you know, he, I mean, he's going to comfortably smash, you know, assist records for defenders in, in this league that, you know, in a way that may not be being for a long, long time. Um, but that's why, you know, that's why I think, you know, having, I think Reese's versatility does help him. Although, ironically, he's been playing right wing back for England, but I think the fact that he could potentially move to right centre back, could could slot in at centre mid, um, does make it interesting. Um yeah, it's just funny, you know, right back has somehow become by far England's um, sort of <laughs> best position. Our deepest position, yeah. We have to put him in the category of like Bellingham and, and Rice, these players that like he's going to play for England for 10 years. He just is. Um, mm-hmm. And maybe that's happening in Chelsea circles, that chat, but I'm not in those circles. So I'm just, <laughs> just adding, my, adding, no, no, no. adding myself mean, to the Reese James bandwagon. I mean, he's been Chelsea's player of the season so far constantly. I mean, the last game or two, he hasn't been quite at his standard. But again, you know, he's 21 years old and Chelsea as a whole haven't been at the uh, at the, the standard that we should be. But um, but he really, I mean, he really is, you know, again, his ceiling, you know, he, he was very good last season, these shames, but there's been, a, there's been a, a whole other gear that he's accessed this year. And, you know, every now and then I look at him and think, God, like, could he become someone who scores 20 goals a season? You know, I mean, uh, you know, probably not. But, you know, you, all of it, it's, it's, it's reminding me a little bit of that, that period where all, all of a sudden Gareth Bale, having been around for a few years, you know, it was like, wait, hold on a sec. You know, yeah. and, and he went from this kind of left back who lost, you know, 20 games in a row without a win or whatever it was for, to, you know, to that, those Inter Milan games and, then, you know, and I mean, their trajectories are not quite the same. Because I mean, uh, but you know, he, he is starting to look like Reese. That you know, I mean, he's got four goals and four assists already in the league this season, in something like ten or eleven games. Yeah, it's a really you know? that's a really fun comparison with Bale. I hadn't thought of him in that, but that's yeah, that's that's basically like you can't rule anything out. You just can't rule it no, out. No, you can't rule it no. out. No. And I'd be more than happy if he just stays as our you know as our right back, right wing back for the next. 10 years that'll also be fantastic too you know um and i think he's got a real shout you know him or mount will be will be chelsea captain within about two years you know as pillar is getting on georgino won't be here forever forever and then we'll be we'll be net you know we one of the kind of the common lot i'm sure who will be captain and and you know between reese and mount they'll certainly be kind of They'll be the two battling for that. I mean, it won't be a battle as such, but you know, they're 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 both you know well up there. And yeah, just I, I think if you asked any Chelsea fan, what you know, I, th- I think we we love Reese to death. He's just a what a player, what a player. Yeah, very jealous, very very jealous. 
Um, George Starkey Midhurst, thanks so much. Thanks really, a lot for having uh, me on, mate. It's been, uh, it's been good to chat about some of these things. You know, it's, been, it's been a while, but it's been really great to chat. Yeah, for sure. The universe has been conspiring against us, but uh, we managed to make it happen. <laughs> Uh, yeah. Happy Monday! Best of uh, best Monday. of luck for the rest of the week. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I'm sure um, we'll speak again another time soon. But um, yeah, have a good week, mate. Cheers. Cheers.